Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And if it's your first time tuning in, Employee of the Month is a show all about work. It's where we spend the majority of our time, so I wanted to hear from people who spend that time wisely. Which is why I'm also thrilled to bring you my conversation today with Jill Abramson. She is the executive editor of The New York Times, which means that she oversees everything from the print and digital to war reporters to the restaurant critics. And you don't have to say it in that affected accent, but I think it adds a little je ne sais quoi to it. Jill Abramson is the first female in the New York Times 160-year history to ever hold the post of executive editor, and I suspect she is the only executive editor in the New York Times history to have a New York Times T tattooed on her. I do want to encourage you to check out Strange Justice, The Selling of Clarence Thomas, a book that Abramson co-authored with her then Wall Street Journal colleague, Jane Mayer. It is a formidable look into the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill grueling hearings when he was being elected to the Supreme Court. I am so grateful to Anita Hill for stepping forward because she changed the face of how we deal with sexual harassment, and it is an issue that affects all of us. Men, women, transgender, hetero, you name it. I'm so glad she stepped forward and really grateful that Mayor and Abramson did the due diligence that the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, failed to do. Without further ado, here's my interview, which took place at the New York Times headquarters. I'm thrilled to be sitting with Jill Abramson. Congratulations on finally winning the Employee of the Month Thank show award. Thank you. I'm very honored. It should come after Scout, your dog, winning uh, Longest Ears in the I, local Nothing can rival that, <laughs> truly. <laughs> As a dog owner, I understand the joy. <laughs> Um, it's sort of, you know, in that philosophy, and this started happening when my kids were small, that everyone must win a prize. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, that one you feel most excited about because you can't secretly uh, push them. That's <laughs> true. That you can't really groom them after a certain mm-hmm. point. Um, you have a, a tattoo of a subway token. I was wondering if when you're interviewing someone particularly hip or young, do you use it as street cred? I don't. I don't flaunt my tattoos. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, you have more than... Oh, so this isn't like a celebrity who has, uh, you know, non-prescription glasses to try to look smart. This isn't just sort of a cover to look hip. No, <laughs> it is for me. It's become a strange form of personal hieroglyphics. <laughs> and I have now four. Are you kidding? I do. I have four of them. And... I think they sort of eventually, when I finish doing them, will tell the story of me, of like where I've lived and what things have been important to me. But that doesn't mean that I have my kids' pictures tattooed. <laughs> yeah, now I'm done. Da- I can don't. You, can you tell me what, what are the other three? Um, so I have the the New York uh, subway token was the first one, and that I got when I lived in Washington D.C. for over twenty years, and moved back to New York City in two thousand and three to become managing editor. And I'd grown up in Manhattan, and I'm a huge subway goer. I'm like I take the subway everywhere now, and the old token has my philosophy of life on it, which. Which is good for one fair. And what are the so, other three? Um, the other three are, um, and because it's hieroglyphics, you know, it, I have it symmetrical. So 
the this is making me sound like a complete <laughs> dingbat who has so overthought her tattoos. But, I, I, I think the um, idea that one overthinks tattoos is already funny because they're supposed to be this impulse thing that you go out and right. do. Right. No, I know. <laughs> so typical that I've done overthinking. <laughs> uh, very typical of me. But so on the opposite arm of the subway token is the image of the palmetto and crescent moon, which I just think is very beautiful and is one of the symbols for the state of South Carolina. And my husband and I lived there uh, at a much earlier point in the late 1970s. And that's kind of where I started doing journalism out of college. So That wasn't when you were doing ad copy. It was, it was like I, I I was doing some ad copy there. I was, and indeed I was. And then quickly, I have two then on my back that are the ins- two institutions that I revere that have shaped me. And one is unsurprisingly the amazing tea in the New New York Times newspaper. So that tea, and then. I have um, a crimson Harvard H, and that's for Harvard and also for my husband, Henry, who we met. We were in the same class at Harvard and got together and stayed together sophomore year. So those are my personal hieroglyphic tattoos. And now I feel like shooting myself (laughs) that I've spent like 10 minutes talking about such a trivial thing. In terms of writer create, you know, having the most creativity, because you've written for so many publications, American Lawyer, which I liken um, for lawyers as cat fancy is to cat owners, mm-hmm. um, but you've written for the Wall Street Journal, you've done ACAPI, you've obviously written for the New York Times and done um, books, and even, did you do a children's book? I did. That was lots of fun, and I did that. My sister is a really famous children's book author, Jane O'Connor, who is the author of the Fancy Nancy books, and after I did the adult version of the Puppy Diaries, we both thought it would be a lot of fun to have the sisters team up and write a children's book. So we did um, one. We actually did two. There are two of them. The first one is called Here Comes Scout. And I will um, underscore that this was probably the least successful children's book that my sister has ever been involved in. (laughs) It's the only children's book that I have been involved in, but it it definitely, it pales next to, you know, the success of her Fancy Nancy and even some other books she's written. But we had a blast doing it and laughed till our sides heard us. You weren't worried about being replaced? Replaced? Yeah, she wanted to continue the series without you. No, I don't think we had to worry about the series being continued at all. <laughs> that no such worries. Where did you feel the most create creative in, in all the different publications you've written for? The most creative, that's a, a great question. And I, I would say, you know, obviously the job that I have now as executive editor of The Times, you know, you can't beat that for creativity. And, you know, if I get a nutty idea, you know, or a creative idea, you know, I can deploy 
reporters, as long as they think it's a good idea and a worthy endeavor to go chase a story. And so, you know, this job is the most creative, you know, palette I can think of. And I always say that, you know, the, it's the equivalent of sitting, at, you know, at the best buffet table in the universe and, you know, sampling the sirloin and the lobster, trying to whip up, you know, an amazing souffle. So there's no beating this one. When a reporter becomes a editor, I sort of liken it to TV writing, where all of a sudden you're in charge of people, even though you've had zero management skills mm -hmm. along the way. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, when you then become managing editor and executive editor, mm -hmm. where do you pick up the business skills? Or am I treating that like rocket science? Um, no, you aren't. And, you know, I have often paused and wished that, you know, I could take a couple of months off and go to, to business school and really study. And actually, my predecessor, Bill Keller, did that. And I think before him, Hal Raines did as well. So I envy them that they did that. And I feel that, you know, you learn, of course you learn uh, through doing and granular, you know, experience, uh, just confronting the array of business issues that I do in this job. But I wish that I had more expertise and that I had studied. Um, I wanted to ask, in the, this age of sort of brand name journalists on the one end, you know, you have Nate Silver and Ezra Klein and um, David Pogue, mm -hmm. and, you know, they're sort of rock stars in the journalism world, and there's sort of a sadness to me because they're all these reporters who are just desperate to get paid at all and also don't want to be the star. They want to mm -hmm. <laughs> very much, you know... There are plenty of people in this newsroom who are like that. It's, a, it's an odd age to be in, and I was curious if your negotiations with Nate Silver, if they changed how you look at, you know, grooming Not and mentoring. Not one bit, and I believe more than ever exactly what I said to Nate's lawyer the first time he came into this very office where we're sitting now, and he was going on and on, Nate's lawyer, saying he represented, you know, that, you know, Nate, and he was this amazing brand, and he said to me, it's like representing the prettiest girl at the party. And I looked at him with kind of a raised eyebrow and just in a deadpan voice, I said to him, I'm very sorry, but the New York Times is always the prettiest girl at the party. And I believed that then, I believe it now, and I think the New York Times will always be an amazing brand and that, you know, our political journalism will go on uh, stronger than ever. It, it, is an, it is an ironic time, I would say, in one level, journalists don't have any um, job security. So it makes sense that they do want to sort of cultivate their I own guess. personality. I guess. I mean, the, the, the job market seems more robust and competitive to me now than it did, let's say, four years ago when everything was full of doom and gloom and everyone was saying, you know, there's no future in journalism and whatnot. I feel like the advent of so many new digital news platforms... But so many of these like, places don't... Pay. Don't pay that well. And, <laughs> you, you know, what I worry about is so many of these places don't give people they call reporters enough 
get out of the building and really witness and talk to people and begin to become highly skilled at finding out difficult information and chipping away at concrete and that kind of thing. I know a lot are trying to do that and even have launched uh, new investigative journalism arms. But, you know, I worry that that kind of basic training and just real reporting and without real reporting, all of this commentary is meaningless, really. I, I think it's a real problem, and I, I was grateful for, even though it may have cost me my own career not going to intern for Conan, I went to work at the State Department being a special assistant taking notes on mm-hmm. Bosnia and Burundi, but I learned <laughs> how to take notes. So I, I do feel bad for um, folks that don't get that training. What I wanted to ask um, was about protocol, like what happens with book deals and film deals? Are there rules the New York Times has? We have rules, but they aren't rigid, and I try to approach these things on a case-by-case basis, really. And same, how do you deal with personal relationships? What counts as a personal relationship? If you, if your child goes to the same school, if you're in a book club, you know, in terms of reporters and their subjects? Well, it's an interesting question to ask me today because I found myself at around 6 o'clock last night in a somewhat awkward position just myself not you know involving a friendship but where Brandeis had decided and announced that I was one of five uh, honorary degree recipients yesterday you know one of the other honorees they had to rescind her honorary degree grant or offer because of very controversial statements she'd made about Islam. And so, you know, I felt, you know, I just, I left it to our reporter, but I said it's my feeling we should probably disclose in the piece about that controversy that I am one of, you know, the other honorees. And uh, so there I was out of the blue becoming like a tiny part of our story. So, you know, life is just like that. And of course, you know, your question is a little bit, you know, different than that. But, you know, I think that any journalist or great reporter tries to be a vacuum cleaner and you find out things from all kinds of people, including family and friends. That doesn't mean, I think, you know, to maintain one's human dignity, it's like unwise to use your friends and family as sources. And so it's dangerous, I think, to write about them yourself. But I, I've always been a kind of vacuum cleaner, and some of my best story ideas have come from people that I know really well. I meant more as subjects, that if... if Right, well, you know, our public editor just wrote about that. Uh, You know, I think, obviously, there have been examples of journalists who have become too close to their sources because I was always an investigative reporter. I never really had that trouble. In fact, you know, colleagues of mine, when I worked at the Wall Street Journal, put a sign on my computer saying, you'll never have lunch in this town again, you know, meaning in Washington. So it's never been a big problem for me. Had they tasted the food, they would know it's a good thing. (laughs) 
Um, I grew up there. Um, I wanted to ask you, when you were writing um, Strange Justice, The Selling of Clarence Thomas, you and your co-author, Jane Mayer, ended up doing all the due diligence that the uh, Senate... The committee <laughs> didn't, right. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's true. It, it was an remarkable book, and I, I'm just curious, do you, do you know if, if any of the senators have ever read it? I do know that some of the senators have read it. Uh, and, you know, over the years, I had very interesting, you know, just conversations with several of them, including Arlen Specter, who, you know, is now passed away. Yeah. But he and I had a very long cup of coffee in New Haven once we were both speaking at Yale Law School. And he had read the book. And, you know, he he was thoughtful and, you know, talked to me. It was off the record at the time, so I shouldn't say what he said. But, you know, he definitely had had some revisionist thoughts about how he performed during those hearings. And, you know, so I know, like, several Democrats on the committee definitely read it. Is that gratifying to know that you had that impact? Well, you know, it's grat- I, I feel that the, the work that Jane Mayer and I did on that book is among, you know, the best quality reporting and work, certainly, that I've done. Jane is, you know, amazing and continues to just hit it out of the park at the New Yorker. Uh, so that part is gratifying. You know, I don't know... You know, in the end, you know, in real time, I think what happened is, you know, it was a completely political circus. And I think that the Democrats, who were the majority on the committee then, led by Chairman Joe Biden, yes. that they abdicated a responsibility to really bring the full facts out in real time. And that, that you know, is a, a blemish on that period. Have you ever heard from him? Because he's such a curious um, person in this case because he was a huge uh, advocate for women's rights now. And so I thought it was interesting. Or, I I mean, he certainly... I interviewed him for the book. So, and that was probably maybe a year and a half after the hearing. So he was reflective and I thought candid and self-examining and, you know, self-critical to some degree. And is it fair to say that sexual harassment in the workplace uh, became a subject that people suddenly, or not suddenly, but... Uh, no, it was sudden then. I think it was an issue that when those hearings in 1991 unfolded, most of America did not know what sexual harassment was. I thought it was revolutionary for sexual harassment in the workplace and for women in the workplace, and yet uh, did nothing, it seems, in, um, for the way that the judiciary hearings, <laughs> uh, they seem very political and very theatrical. Right, and I, you know, I, I remember back then, it's really how I first got to know Maureen Dowd, because she was covering the hearings for the New York Times, and I then worked for the Wall Street Journal, and I was covering the hearings for the Journal, and we sat right across from each other. So in real time, we were covering the same thing, but Maureen, alone among all of the journalists who were crowded in that room, saw the tableau of the all-male white judiciary committee questioning both of these witnesses, and she got it. And if you go back and read her news stories during 
those four days are just amazing pieces. What? And she saw something that I confess in real time, I don't think I did. Um, I'm going to segue, and it's an odd segue, but Maureen Dowd wrote an obituary for my godfather, and because I was so young when he passed, it gave Aww. me a window into um, his history in a way that made me excited about uh, the obits, and they became a great way to learn about history. Do you plan some of them in, in advance? Oh, we have, you know, we try to have advanced obituaries written of, you know, most prominent figures in politics, in the arts, in business, you name it, uh, of a certain age. It, okay, that's what but, I was going to... It's a little But material. obviously, you know, a Philip Seymour Hoffman dies or, you know, someone else young and we don't. And we're launching a major front page obituary from a standing star. Uh, and our obituaries desk, it's, it's you know, one of the most experienced, wonderful places in this newsroom. They're amazing. I had this image of them, you know, I didn't know if they looked at someone and said, oh, he looks a little peaked. We should get on it. Well, <laughs> sometimes, we usually not. We aren't that omniscient. But often someone, someone in someone's family will call us to say that someone is near death. And just to say, you know, if you don't have something in the advance queue, you want to think about it. And actually, we ju the New York Times just launched a new product called Times Premier, where journalists in the newsroom are giving our most devoted readers a glimpse sort of behind the curtain. And Margalit Fox, who's one of the fabulous obituary writers, just wrote a piece for Times Premier subscribers about how the obituaries desk works, and it's fantastic. Oh, I can't wait to see it. I, I am a subscriber. Uh, my parents have no idea that they're still paying for me, and I want to <laughs> thank the Times for <laughs> never showing them their bill. <laughs> um, I, I also wanted to ask, um, how much do you tip your New York Times delivery person? How much do I tip my New York Times delivery person? I do it once a year. Yeah, we get the envelopes in the mail. The en no, the envelope, not, not Sorry, in the, in the mail. paper. It in the comes paper. in the paper. And I am not sure because that area of life falls to my husband. Well, maybe he can give me a suggestion because I, I was genuinely curious as to know how much I'm supposed to tip and whether Your it's appropriate home. to give a gift or... or um, give money. Have you ever, in, see in our building I occasionally encounter you know even though it's very early the person who's tossing it. I, uh, ours, see ours don't come into my building they're like outside on the doorstep and I am always the first person who takes all the I live in a little building. I live in a loft building down in Tribeca and I bring the papers in every morning and I'm happy to say <laughs> it's papers plural. Uh, most of my neighbors are home delivery subscribers which makes me very happy because they're all younger than me. I, well I um, end up getting articles that I wouldn't see on my own on my computer. It's just the nature of opening up a paper that there's going to be an article. Serendipitous I, yes, reading. I, I, right. I had no idea that that existed and no matter what metrics you use, you're not going to know that I actually was really mm -hmm. interested in feminist kung fu, unless it's there on the paper. I'm not, but I'm just giving an example of, of something. Um, I was like, wow! <laughs> <laughs> the, the 
uh, TV listings. I know that New York Times is not allowed to be funny because you get all these letters of complaint sometimes from. You're allowed to be funny. <laughs> I resent that. <laughs> Um, but I, I shouldn't say that because I actually have read a lot of funny articles. Um, but consistently, the funniest part to me is the TV listings, whoever does the recap. Of, like, movies. <laughs> yes. A little, like... They do a, you know, a, a two, two words. Word. <laughs> like, glum, but somehow uplifting. Or, yeah, that kind of thing. I, uh, I, that's the most... They were, you know, they were done mainly quite a while ago. They're updated, obviously, as new movies come down the pike. But the thing that when I go out to speak, that I the complaint that I most consistently hear from readers is they miss... We used to publish once a week the TV book, which yes. had... The week, what would be on TV for the week, and it was full of those, you know, capsules. <laughs> and I can almost tell when someone is barreling towards me at the end of a speech, like, oh gosh, they're going to complain about the TV book going away. Yeah. Now, when people complain to you, do you, um, now that you've not only, you know, almost got killed by a truck and hurt your femur <laughs> and then, you know, fell down a mountain, do you say, do you use that as street cred now? When someone starts to complain, you'd be like, oh, really? No. I've had a lot of broken bones, and I'm fine. Mm -mm. I don't. <laughs> you may want to. <laughs> I love it. For some odd reason, I always am very tolerant of hearing people's complaints. What are some of the, the most absurd or funny letters that, that um, you've gotten? <sighs> absurd or funny? I know I have... The most absurd was after a C-SPAN appearance. This is when I lived in Washington where, for some reason, I was wearing my glasses. A, re a reader who was in prison wrote me a letter begging me for a pair of my glasses. I thought that was absurd <laughs> and slightly ominous. I love that you don't um, differentiate between the print and the digital. And, and, right, and it's one news report. I am uh, thrilled to hear, hear that. Um, however, you have so many things to oversee. What are the ones that you must read before they go out? in the paper? Well, I, in general, I, obviously, I read online all day long. Uh, I don't, you know, any story that is possibly controversial or is high stakes for some reason or another, I will have read before it goes online. And that's really most of the time where we're first publishing things. Uh, all of the stories that are on the front page of the print paper, I've read um, at least the tops of before, you know, they go to the printing press. And, uh, you know, I'll ask to read a number of different things. But obviously most of the content I'm reading for the first time, just like you are. Can I ask one last uh -huh. question? Because um, I know I know you have to go off and, and work. Or eat lunch first and then work. Well, I think the lunch is more important. Um, it's with the publisher, so it oh. probably is more important. But <laughs> so it is work. My lunch is usually completely <laughs> unimportant and often overlooked, although I don't look that way. <laughs> you look great. Um, I wanted to ask if you... 
and I'm sorry that the question is coming out so uh, inartfully, m- most of my questions are today, but um, I wanted to ask, when someone's abroad, a foreign correspondent, mm-hmm. do you have a, a limit on how long you'll keep them out there? I know that there are a lot of people who are, yeah. want to stay out you know, for years at a time. Um, you know, the custom at the Times, and we probably have, you know, for a daily uh, news report, more foreign correspondents than any other uh, news organization, but for, you know, Bloomberg, I think, has more, but that's, you know, for core business news. Uh, the custom used to be that, you know, your rotations lasted three or four years, uh, and we try to still stick to that, but it's not an absolute rule. Okay. Um, I want to thank you so, so much. It was a pleasure to get a, a glimpse into what it's like to be um, an, a reporter turned executive editor and uh, children's book writer. Well, thank you for um, having me on your podcast. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe on iTunes and come to a live taping at Joe's Pub. They are so much fun. They happen monthly. I'm an artist in residence there. It doesn't come with a residence, but it does come with a phenomenal opportunity to share these great interviews live. You can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out ways you can donate, get involved, and um, get tickets to upcoming live tapings. Thank you to Ian Mazoff for editing this together, and thanks to all of you for listening. Let's all go out there and change the world. Or at least just take advantage of today. Today is good. Today I'm going to accomplish something. Hope you will too. But you don't have to. I mean, don't feel obligated on my account. 